Welcome to Ex Libris, the podcast that, with the help of the greatest writers around, champions libraries and bookshops. These are our society's safe spaces, particularly libraries. They are palaces for the people, free of charge, where everyone is welcome and nobody judged. Yet they are in peril and closing like never before. My name's Ben Holden. I'm a writer and producer and, more to the point, fed up of this state of affairs. So, during each episode of Ex Libris, I will be meeting a great author at a library or an independent bookshop of their choice, somewhere that has become resonant for them. And, I hope, after you listen to this episode, we'll feel special to you too. This episode of Ex Libris comes to you from Bonnie St. Andrews. We're here to meet the queen of crime herself. Val McDermott's books have sold 16 million times over in more than 40 languages. So it's a garlanded career and one that is owed to the public library system, in Val's own words. I can't wait to ask her more about that debt to libraries. She is elected, however, to meet in a bookshop. The scene of today's crime is Topping and Company, here on Greyfriars Garden. Joining the conversation today is Michael Grieve, senior bookseller at Toppings. Let's head inside now, into the book-lined warmth. The fires are on, and books are the best sort of insulation after all, not just from the cold. Val, Michael, thank you so much for meeting us and talking here in this lovely nook in Toppings. Val, why is this shop personally special to you? I know that you have fond attachments to libraries, but it's a beautiful, beautiful store. It is a beautiful shop, but my relationship with Toppings goes back a very long time. I've known Robert Topping since the early 1990s when he was running Waterstones in Deansgate, their flagship store there. And my first books were coming out and Robert was incredibly supportive. That was when we sort of forged our friendship and we've stayed in touch ever since. And then when Robert started opening wonderful independent bookshops, of course that was huge Philip for those of us who who love his style of book selling. Mm. And this one is you know very dear to me because you know, I grew up in Fife and to have a bookshop like this in Fife would have been an absolute dream for me growing up. First time I came in the shop, I just fell in love with the shelves. It's beautiful shelves, all handmade, different different levels, and beautiful beading. I said to my partner, I said, I said, we need to have a house that will go with these shelves. <laughs> and we have and subsequently, do we do now, we have a townhouse in Edinburgh and we have assorted shelves all over the house. We have a library basically on the, the first floor that was made by the same joiners who oh, wow. uh, who installed the oh, shelves really here. Did, we really did. We have, we have ladders that go around corners. I don't blame you. They're absolutely gorgeous. Just and beautiful. The ladders are fantastic. It's beautiful. It's lovely. And it's what I've always dreamed of, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, to have that kind of place to have a, a room of books in yeah. that way. No. It's lovely. It's lovely. It just it's, I walk in there and sit down in my, in my reading chair and I just think this has made it all worthwhile. And Michael, can you speak a little bit more to the history of the store? I know there are a couple of branches. Well, as Val was talking about, Robert used to run Manchester Deansgate and... It was, by all accounts, the best stocked, most richly diverse Watersons in the country at the time. And it was when they started slowing down their operation, as it were, when they were taken over by HMV. 
Robert refused to slim down with them and um, was was shown the door and he decided oh, wow. to set up to show them how to do it, as it were, and opened the first bookshop, first talking company in Ely in Cambridgeshire in about 2002 or so. And it was in between Ely and St Andrews, they opened a shop in Bath, but St Andrews came about when the topping, Cornelia topping, was going to university in St Andrews. And Robert walked past this shop with a big for sale sign on the front of it and thought <laughs> he and Louise Topping had met in St Andrews. They were planning on sort of coming up here later on in their life and all the stars aligned, I think. Yeah, yeah. And Robert has also had a very distinctive style as a bookseller. He believes in a book and so he gets passionate about it. And I remember at Deansgate when he was there, someone had published a book about the architecture of Manchester and it was a very beautiful book. It was a lovely object. And head office had said he could order 20 so, so he Robert ordered a, ordered a thousand. thousand. <laughs> and, he, and sold and they were, everyone, he I sold think. Everyone. They, were, they were in stacks around the shop. There was like stacked sort of waist high around the shop. Because it was Manchester, people would pick it up and go, this is beautiful, I have to have this. It's very homely, actually, the way that the books are sort of everywhere here, sort of toppling over, but also beautifully um, a huge number of signed first editions of all these, I mean, almost everything seems to be signed by the author. All of the four bookshops in the company have their own events programs so when we get somebody like Valen to sign a stack of books they get shared equally yeah, no, amongst it's a the real zone. treasure trove walking in it's, inc- it's astonishing and Val we we're in a shop and obviously with our podcast we celebrate both libraries and bookshops but I know that the library growing up was a very important place for you in Kikoldi yeah I grew up very much a working class family and there wasn't money to spare for books. This was the days before sort of cheap mass market paperbacks were everywhere. And there, as I said, there just wasn't money to spare. But my parents were of a generation where they really believed that the way to make sure your kids had a better life was through education and through reading. And my mum used to take me to the library, in fact, before I, I could read. She took me to the library before I could say library. In fact, I used to say we were going to the Labrador because <laughs> that was the kind of dog we had. So I knew it. Something like that. You know, so she'd take me to the library and read me books. And then, of course, when I was six years old, they did an astonishing thing. This was not the reason why they moved, but they moved to live opposite the Central Library in Kirkcaldy, which is a very good library. In Fife, we have a tradition of philanthropy towards public buildings. You know, Carnegie, mm. uh, first public library in, in Dunfermline. And the library in Kirkcaldy was given by the Nairn family, who were the big uh, linoleum magnates. Kirkcaldy was famous. It was the world capital of linoleum. And so I would just go to the library pretty much every night after school and read my way around the shelves. Mm. My Scotland, your beautiful book, which it gives you a sort of tour of the country via your life and your writing. There's a very special section right at the outset about the library. Would you mind reading no, not that for us? That'd be fantastic. Much more important from my perspective is the impressive neoclassical sandstone building that sits above the verdant memorial gardens and houses the library and art gallery. It was a byproduct of linoleum, a gift from the Nairn family, the principal of a dozen manufacturers in the town. When I was six, my parents moved house to live across the road from the library and my fate was sealed. My parents were working class, that cohort of respectable poor, who believed that education was the way to a better life for their children. We couldn't afford books, but when I was still a toddler, my mother used to trail me half a mile across the council housing estate to the branch library to read me picture books. By the time we moved to the town centre, I could read by myself, and I was already enthralled to stories. The library became my home from home, and I read my way round the shelves. 
Back then, you could only take out four books at a time, and in Presbyterian Scotland, two of them had to be non-fiction. The line had to be held against the relentless encroachment of frivolity. But even on the non-fiction shelves, I managed to find stories. Tarka the Otter, Norse myths and legends, border ballads and tales, and plenty of others. I love stories. My life has been bookended and bookmarked by hearing them, reading them, and telling them. But from those early days in Kirkcaldy, the stories that have carved out the deepest impression in my memory and my heart have one common feature. The Wind in the Willows, Treasure Island, the Shally School series, I, Robot. What they share is a sense of place. In my mind's eye, I can see where each of these stories unfolds. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And so this was your second home, as you call it. And it, it, did the building and all the imagined worlds inside it, did that allow you escapism throughout your youth? Did that continue for the following years there? Yeah, I mean, that was my window in the world. It was, I suppose, a door that opened into other possible lives. Kirkcaldy is in Fife, and Fife geographically is quite a distinct and isolated part of Scotland in a funny kind of way that's right in the middle of the central belt. Until we got the road bridges in the 1960s, it was quite difficult to come to Fife. You had to make a very specific decision to come here. You didn't get here by accident. <laughs> and we had, a, I think, a, a very distinct uh, view of ourselves of being different and distinct. It was politically quite radical. We were the first to send a communist MP to Westminster, for example. Mm. But the flip side of that was that it could be quite inward looking. So almost all of the people who taught me at school, for example, came from Fife. They'd gone off to university and come back to Fife. And that was the expected pattern of your life. The school I went to had the view that if you were bright, you went to Edinburgh or St Andrews. And if you weren't quite so bright, you went to Stirling or Dundee. But either way, you came back to Fife. And if you're really, really sort of a bold person, you might work in Edinburgh and commute. It was a very strong sense of belonging. And I knew instinctively from a very early age that I, I wanted more than that. I wanted something different, that I didn't fit with that sort of confined life. At the time, I thought it was because I wanted to be a writer and that, that somehow set me apart. It took me a long time to understand that uh, a large part of it also was my sexuality because there were no visible lesbians in Fife when I was growing up. I mean, there was no visible lesbians in most places, but very particularly here. I mean, you'd have been more likely to find a unicorn than an out lesbian wandering about Fife. And so I didn't have a name to put on, on who I was, because if you can't see it, you can't be it. Mm. You have to be able to imagine something, and you can't imagine it without some sort of template to start that imagination off. And so, yeah, that for me, the library was the first step on a journey of escape because it showed me worlds beyond my window. And the library was directly responsible for me going to Oxford in a perhaps not expected way. You went very, I know you went, or you got in at 16, which yeah. is extraordinary. Yeah, but I read the Shelley School books when I was growing up. The Shelley School books are one of my favourite series of books, girls' school stories, right. set first in Austria, then later in Switzerland. I learned a lot of things from the Shelley School books. They were actually a proper series in the sense that the books followed on from each other and things had consequences. You know, if you read The Famous Five, they all seem to take place in the same sempiternal summer mm. and nobody ever has any self-consciousness about anything. You know, nobody ever says, we can't go into the dark caves because the last time we went into the dark caves, something terrible happened. 
nobody notices, you know. And it's like, it doesn't matter what order you read them in. Uh, right. But with the Shelley School books, it did matter because if you broke your leg in one book, you were still limping three books later. So there was that sense of progression and therefore a sort of engagement and commitment to the characters. And there was also the sense of mystery and puzzle because it was the library, so you never read them in sequence. You just took whatever one was on the shelf. Mm -hmm. So you'd go book 27, book 43, book 6, and gradually you formed this Piece picture... Yeah, and you'd have these moments of revelation. You think, oh, that's why she behaves <laughs> like that. And so I, I love that aspect of it. But for me, one of the key things, or two things really, that were key to my future. One was that one of the characters grows up to become a writer of girls' school stories in a way that we'd now see as very metafictional, but back then it was just what she did. Hmm. And in one of the books, she gets a letter from her publisher, and in this letter there's a cheque. I thought, oh my God, you get paid money for this. You write books, you get paid. It's a job. I could do that. And the other thing was that everybody who went on to further education from the Shelley School, they either went to the Sorbonne, uh, and I knew my French wasn't good enough mm. for that, or they went to Oxford, or they went to the Kensington School of Needlework. So for me, it was obvious if I was going to spread my wings and extend my horizons, I had to go to Oxford. So you hadn't been to Oxford at this point? You no, no, no. Only no. in your mind? In your Only in my mind, yeah. yeah. Before I went to Oxford, we'd had one holiday in England. We'd been to England for a week in Blackpool, which obviously prepared me yes. for Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely spires. Yeah, like the Blackpool Tower dreaming spires. <laughs> I know that you've also said a library card is a powerful weapon to change lives and with it we can learn about other places other ways of seeing the world other lives so there you go we learn how to value what we have to mourn what we've lost to dream of what we might become so that's very much in keeping with this mm. so what sort of age was that when you were reading those books you had you decided uh, quite i think i was about eight or nine when i discovered that, that you that. got to be a writer but you got to make money out of being yeah that was it i thought that that's it. what i want to do never really I, I can tell lies i thought you know you never look back basically, no from I'm, I, I think i'm very lucky I think most people take a while to discover their passion, to find out what they want to do with their lives. I knew from the sort of age of about nine that that was what I was going to do. But you must have also, your parents must have given you that security of that can-do spirit of, the, as you said, you didn't you didn't necessarily have the role models around in terms of your sexuality, but also presumably in terms of the writers as well. No, but you had that, that... People like us didn't become writers. No, so there, there you've yeah. got, but you've got that in your head from eight and you, that's what I'm going to mm -hmm. do. Everybody laughed at me. I mean, everybody just like, you know, it was like, don't be ridiculous, people like us don't do that. But I was determined, and I was very lucky, I suppose, also. My father was a great Burns man, great Robert Burns man, and he really did believe that a man's a man for all that, and you shouldn't let anyone call you master, you know, mm. that the only thing standing between me and my dreams was me. So I was always encouraged to go for it, to have a goal, and to mm. be determined. And were there any books in that library obviously you've talked about the series and the impact that's had and you can see the impression of that in terms of your own series is but were there mysteries or in terms of the genre novels the crime novels were there things there that sort of sowed any seeds in your head in terms of the types of things you wanted to write i know that you've written all sorts of things but notably the crime novels were there any seminals i know you read bucken and you read robert louis stevenson and you were omnivorous but were there any sort of seminal works that sort of well, I read was the, that something else? I read the Nancy Drew books and, and the Hardy Boys, you know, and I, mm -hmm. I, I rather envied Nancy Drew's Little Red Roadster. But what really turned me on to the genre fiction was, was a kind of accident, really. My grandparents were not readers. The only book they had in the house apart from the Bible, and, and that in itself was a mystery. It was Agatha Christie's The Murder at the Vicarage. 
And that was a book I started reading when I was probably about nine or ten because I'd turn up at my grandparents for the weekend or for a week in the school holidays with my library books and I'd run out of library books and so I'd fall back on Agatha Christie. Linguistic scientists tell us that you can read Christie if you have a reading age of nine because her grammatical constructions are so limpid and her language is so clear Hmm. and simple that it's possible to understand the text very readily. And so I read The Moderate the Vicarage and I thought this was great. I loved it. I just was entranced by it. And I read it and I reread it again and again. I look at it now and I think I was probably lucky that my first proper crime novel was Christie at the Peak of Her Powers. It's a beautiful construction. You've got the sort of overarching main story. And then you've got lots of subplots that's kind of interlock so that when you have a sort of hiatus in the main story, there's something terribly exciting going on with the subplot. And every one of those subplots has got, you know, set up development payoff. And it's just, they all interlock and it's this beautiful, I mean, if you drew it out, it would be just this lovely sort of geometrical thing. But, I mean, I wasn't thinking of it in those terms when I was reading it back then. I mean, I understand that now, what the charm of it was. I got hooked on this. I thought, I have to read more of these. And you were rereading at that point. You were already sort of, not just once, you were going back in. Yeah, I was going back into it again because there was nothing else. There was nothing else to read. And Um, at that age, though, that's going to really sort of get emblazoned into you or printed in in somewhere. Definitely imprinted that idea of... uh, of how to use structure, although I couldn't have told you that at the time. And I was determined to read more of these books once I discovered that Agatha Christie had written more than one book. And the problem was that they were in the adult library and there's no way, no, no way to get it. It's not like now where everything's on open shelves. That was off limits. It was totally off limits. So I did a bad thing. I, I stole my mum's library tickets. Nice. And I went to the library and I, and I did my most pitiful face and said to the librarian, I have to get a book for my mum. She's not well. (laughs) And God bless those librarians. It worked for five years until I was old enough to get my adult library tickets. And, you they know, were hardly Miss Marples then, because you were obviously in there the whole time. So yeah, you my mum's not they well. Might have figured it out. <laughs> but uh, so I read my way around the excellently stocked crime section of Kirkcaldy Library over the, the course of those years. But of course, you know, you never get away scot free. Your past always catches you out. And a few years ago, I went back to Kirkcaldy Library to do a gig, and I took my mum with me because she's still living across the road from the library. And to my astonishment, a couple of the women who had been librarians when I was a kid were, were there. Oh. I was introduced them to my mum, and one of them said to my she looked, she looked quite shocked. She said, oh, Mrs. McDermott, I thought you must be dead. <laughs> uh, so my mum said, Dead? Why would I be dead? And the librarian go, Well, with you being a bedridden invalid all those years. And I'm like, Oh, no, I'm in so much trouble now. You know? So the funny thing is, though, of course, that you were reading The Queen of Crime, and now that mantle is often yours. You've sort of become yeah, well, the Queen of Crime. It's. Uh, Yes, I find it quite strange because, I, I mean, as a, particularly as a Republican, a journalist once dubbed me the gobby shop steward of crime, and I think that's probably a more accurate description of my, my mindset, I know really. P.D. James, who was also sort of in, had that mantle, yeah. didn't like it much. No, I think it's oh, it's just one of these things. It's a label that, that yeah. you get get attached to you, usually for reasons of marketing, I think, more than any sort of... It's, it's kind of invidious, really, because mm-hmm. there's no such thing, really, as a writer that speaks to everybody. And there aren't kings of crime, is, is No. There? Lee Child once referred to himself as my consort. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, you know, crime as a genre is often talked about in terms of, and we're in a bit of a golden age of crime, a lot of female authors. You've talked a bit about the female point of view in terms of writing about the, the sort of experience or the threat 
acts of violence rather than a man's point of view. And of course, there's a lot of controversy around certain shows and depictions of violence against women. So there is also some gender interesting sort of discussions to be had within the genre, perhaps. Yeah, but I think what's important is there is no doubt that women are often, in fact, more often than men, the victims of sexual violence. And, you know, I'm not going to stop writing about these things. Mm. I think what's important, though, is that you write about these things with a degree of awareness that there is a line you need to not cross, you need to rein in, you need to say enough to be honest about what violence is and what it does and the impact it has and the way it contaminates the lives it touches without revelling in it, without it becoming a kind of pornography of violence. But what my books do and what a lot of other women writers know, what their books do, is we have characters, female characters with agency. So the victims are not the only women you see in the books. You see women who take responsibility. You see women who have an important role to play in the unravelling of these crimes and the resolution of these crimes. So it's not like the olden days, if you like, of sort of like Raymond Chandler, where the only women in the books were the victims, the, the vamps and the vixens. Mm. You know, now we take responsibility and we are the agents of vengeance, I suppose. I know you've sold 16 million copies. Something like that, yeah. And in 40 languages, it's astonishing. And Lee Child has also said that your books have a rare and self-sufficient integrity, which is a very succinct and nice way of putting it. And in other words, you've mastered murder as a fine art. I only mention that because in your Mermaid Singing novel, you referenced De Quincey's treatise on murder. Uh, essay, I, I essay. suppose, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's a very satirical essay on murder considered as one of the fine arts. I took quotes from that as the epigraphs for the chapters. Yeah, they're beautiful. I have one here. I'll read it if you don't mind. People begin to see that something more goes to the composition of a fine murder than two blockheads to kill and be killed, a knife, a purse and a dark lane. Design, gentlemen. Grouping, light and shade, poetry, sentiment and now deemed to be indispensable to attempts of this nature, which is great stuff, although gentleman is, again, a little limiting. But the components there seem to be in line with what you were describing or what you were learning from Agatha Christie and also in terms of your own novels. I'd like to think so. I think the contemporary crime novel, at its best is about almost everything except the act of murder. I mean, we, we write about all kinds of things. And the crime, if you like, is the lure mm. to draw the reader in while we spin our tales that cover all sorts of aspects of modern life. Everything from politics to romance find their way into our books. We write about all kinds of things. But the string that pulls the reader through mm. is the crime and its resolution. And that gives us, I suppose, gives us free reign to write whatever we want to write. I'm very lucky to be writing crime fiction at a time when the genre has become so expansive. You know, I started out in British crime fiction, really, you had village mysteries and police procedurals, and that was about it. You had Ruth Rendell kind of out there on the fringes writing her sort of dark psychological novels, but mostly what people were writing were these kind of home counties novels about small towns and villages or about the Metropolitan Police solving everything. 
I started writing at a time when I was, I suppose, independent of each other, a group of writers writing regional crime novels, you know, John Harvey writing in Nottingham, Reg Hill writing in Mid-Yorkshire, Ian Rankin writing in Edinburgh. And we were taking murder out of that cosy home counties environment and, and setting it down in places where it was a part of a different fabric. Mm. And it seems, yeah, listening to you talk about the old days, they sound quite backward, not just in the scope, but in terms of, it's, it's amazing to think of that. Well, they were quite conservative socially as mm. well. I mean, there was a very strong conservatism running through the genre. I mean, there were obviously there were always outliers, but the the mainstream of crime fiction up to, I suppose, the early eighties was quite conservative. And looking at the mermaid singing, I was quite struck in terms of Tony, the the profiler, who of course has had huge longevity as a as a character in terms of his process. And a lot, all your novels are full of beautiful process, which is, for a reader, incredibly satisfying. And all the research is threaded in there, but it's really rich. But his process, not to get too meta, but sort of began to make me wonder if it was similar in terms of how you are yourself going about conceiving of the characters, their motivations, and sort of being, you're always one or two or three steps ahead of us as the reader. But then in terms of getting inside Tony's head, you're sort of always inside everyone's heads in a similar, struck me in a slightly sort of similar fashion. Well, I think there's a lot of truth in that, yeah. I mean, if you can't get inside the heads of your characters, you're never going to be able to write a character who spends his time getting inside the heads no. of other people. People sometimes ask me, is it harder to write the murderers, harder to write the villains? How do you manage to get inside their heads? I say it's just the same as writing any other character. You have to figure out why they do the things they do, what motivates them, what's in it for them, what drives them to do these things. And it doesn't matter if you're writing about the, the detective or you're writing about a minor character or you're writing about the murderer. You've still got to understand why they do the things they do and it's got to make sense in terms of their world. People don't do things for no reason. Mm. Even the most apparently random choice that a criminal makes will have its roots somewhere in their history or their worldview. So you have to figure all that out. So yeah, I suppose in that sense, writing a character like Tony Hill was uh, is about externalising the process that you go through as a writer. And the, the also the conjuring of imagination in terms of his placing himself into the scenes and into the characters, the minds of these people that he's trying to... Yeah. And I'm always reasoning backwards, of course, that's the thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking backwards. I'm, when I'm starting out, I kind of know what the crimes are going to be, so I have to reason backwards. I know Reverse what the outcome engineer. is, so yes. I can reason backwards. Yes, yes. And so I can put everything in place to make sense. Yes. Whereas when somebody's doing this for real, somebody who's actually a profiler, they're having to reason forwards. They've got a limited amount of information and they've got to try and figure out from that limited amount of information where the end game is going to be. Mm -hmm. But as I have the advantage of knowing what the end game is from the start. And it's so funny, I've, I've actually had on a couple of occasions where there's been sort of serial offences going on. I've had newspapers ring me up and oh, wow. say, will you profile the killer? And I go like, no, of course I <laughs> wow. won't. You know, I, I just make stuff up. That's pretty yeah. high praise though, yeah. Well, yeah, but it's just somebody who's not thought things through, really. But there's loads of, again, mermaid singing. I love to, if you don't mind, I read one other thing. That's how I do the job. Gradually, the evidence makes me eliminate some of my initial thoughts. Eventually, some sort of pattern begins to form. This time, he was going to be as close to a killer as he's ever been. For a man who lived his life behind the shield of learned behaviours, penetrating a killer's face was the only game in town. 
which is fantastic stuff, but also, again, just made me think of, without overdoing this, your own process. Did you feel like you were onto something with that novel in particular? Because it felt, at the time, it was a big success, of course, and and you were doing some interesting things in terms of the genders of the victims and the, the UK profiler was a new a new sort of thing as well. But did you feel like you were on something? Of course, it turned into, as well as the series of novels, the Wire and the Blood TV series, the novel also won the Crime Rights Association Golden Dagger Award for Novel of the Year, etc. I know you've won yeah. more awards than I probably have time to list. But that one, that was a bit that of a game changer. That was a game changer for yeah. me, yeah. When I discovered the notion of, of psychological profiling, it seemed to me to be a really exciting thing to write about. And at the time that I wrote The Mermaid Singing, nobody in the UK was writing about this at all. I mean, it was the first sort of profiling novel in the UK at that time. I'd read Thomas Harris, and, and on the basis of that, I went away and, and read all the non-fiction I could find about it. There's a marvellous publication called the FBI Book of Sexual Homicide. Wow. <laughs> and that was my bedtime reading for quite a while. <laughs> and I was just, I was completely fascinated by this. It seemed to me to be a, a really exciting and different way of approaching the idea of writing about crime. And I discovered very quickly that we do things differently in the UK from the way they do it in America. In America, the FBI trains up their agents in what they call behavioural science, effectively psychology, and then they go out into the field. But in the UK, we don't have the number of these kind of serial offences for it to be practicable to have some sort of specialist unit within the police. So they summon people who are clinical psychologists for real. They do this. This is a day job. They spend their days working with serial offenders or one sort of another. So I thought this was really interesting because mm. it creates all sorts of tensions right away. You know, the cops never like being told what to do, what to think. So I thought, this is fascinating. I've never seen anything quite like this before. And how exciting is this to work with? And then I thought, if I make Tony Hill's liaison person a woman, that also creates a different dynamic because you get another set of tensions there. Because at the time, I mean, it's hard to think about it now, but back in the, the early, mid-1990s, there were not many women in senior jobs in CID. So women were not very highly regarded often by their colleagues. So I thought that gave me another whole set of tensions to go on. And I thought this is creating all these different possibilities for narrative mm. and possibilities for relationships. It was very exciting when I started thinking about the book and, and working on it. And I suppose I wasn't thinking about it in terms of it being a game changer. No. When I was writing it, I was just, this is, I've got this great story to tell. And that's always really, I suppose, when I sit down with a book, I'm not thinking about it in any terms other than I'm really excited about telling this story. Because I think if you start looking at how it's going to be received or what readers are going to think about it and, and will readers like it if I do it this way rather than that way, that way madness lies and that way bad books lie. But the incitement and the enthusiasm which sort of infused the writing process in what became the novel, you felt especially sort of, I'm on something or you really enjoyed sort of... It was because it was fresh. I mean, yeah. I, I, I had felt in, in my different ways just as excited about when I started writing the Lindsay Gordon books and the Kate Brannigan books. They excited me. The idea of what I could do with those books was exciting to me. I was lucky that with The Mermaid Singing, it, it hit the right nerve at the right time. The Wire and the Blood quote is an Elliot quote from Four mm. Quartets, but it's quite elusive, or at least to me, what the meaning is. Uh, the thrilling wire in the blood sings below inveterate scars, appeasing long-forgotten wars, is that? Yeah. Who knows? It's amazing. It's poetry. It's amazing. It? It's poetry. You can mean what, it means what you want it to mean. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I don't think have to be that explicit. I mean, Let's you know, not the Mermaid singing the in itself it, is, no. is not the most obvious title. No, but they're fantastic. A, they're beautiful titles. Yeah, I think it's quite nice to have a title that the reader picks up and goes, like, what's that People about? kind of have to reach yeah. towards, yeah. yeah. 
And your newest novel, How the Dead Speak, is the latest instalment in the Tony Hill, Carol Jordan series. So they've been through an awful lot. They have. That series, as you described in the library, now you've created several of these series. Tony's actually the prison library features. <laughs> yes. I was pleased yes. to read. Yeah. There's also... I had to find something to do with them. (laughs) I had to, without saying too much, the the nature of the story, I had to find a story for him inside the jail. And I didn't just want it to be the sort of standard fare of, you know, sort of people getting a shiv in the shower sort of thing. I just wanted Mm. wanted to make it a little bit more nuanced than that. Yeah, and it is a legal requirement for prisons to have libraries, and yet Mm -hmm. it's not a legal requirement for schools to have libraries, astonishingly. Detail. A little little yeah. sidebar. But it's also not funded by the prison service, it's funded by the local authority, prison libraries. Interesting. Yeah. What do you look for now that you've done several of these successful series when you're sitting down? What are the starting points for the characters as opposed to a standalone? Is it a very different it's sort of process? It's just a story. When I start to feel the, the shape of a story, when I start to have an idea what I want to write about and how the story is going to play out and what kind of story it is, it becomes very clear to me very quickly if it fits into one of the series that I write or if it's going to have to find another set of characters to make the story work. So there's certain kind of stories that Tony and Carol can tell, there's certain kind of stories that Karen Perry can tell, and then there's stories that don't work for either of them. And I think I'm, I've always, from the start of my career, written different kinds of books, yeah. which for me has given me the freedom always to be writing a book I'm excited about. I think it must be awful for people who only write one series character because they must throw away so many stories that just don't work. You know, if you've got a private eye as your central character, there's only a certain kind of story you can tell in the first person. If you've got a cop as your central character, then you can only tell a cop's stories. Whereas I've always kind of taken the view of I want to have the freedom to tell the story that excites me. So whenever I sit down to write a book, I'm excited because this story has sort of gripped me by the throat and needs to be told. In fact, sometimes Tony and Carol actually was started as a standalone. I didn't intend that to be the start of a series, but as I came towards the end of The Mermaid Singing, I thought these characters are really interesting, both in terms of their professional lives and their personal relationship, the chemistry between them, I can take this further. And I thought I might get three or four books out of it. Well, you know, How the Dead Speak is number 11. The same with Karen Piri. She started off as a minor character in a standalone. And a few years after that, I had an idea for a novel about a cold case set in Fife. And I thought, well, I've already got this cold case cop Mm. in Fife. Nobody will remember I've used her before. And then Karen suddenly took on a life of her own. So, like, you know, it's five of them. Next year, there'll be six. That's amazing. And they span 25-odd years as well. And as you said, in terms of the genre, you've, along the way, kind of chronicled various changes in society. In, in the new book, it's not De Quincey, Tony gets the epigraphs himself, yeah. which is cool. And he says in one of them, one of the less obvious effects of austerity has been the increase in the numbers of the visibly vulnerable. For predators, it's been a gift-wrapped opportunity to expand their choice of victims. Mm-hmm. There are more people out there that nobody misses. Mm. And there are certainly people who will take advantage of that. As a sort of sidebar to that, um, back in the 1980s, late 80s, early 90s, a group of chief constables got together in England, about half of England's forces. They met for a weekend in a country house and brought along their unsolved murders. And at the end of that weekend, their conclusion was that there were probably at least three previously unsuspected serial killers working in England, preying on sex workers. 
And that was that. I mean, I never heard anything came of that. Nothing more was, there's no result. When these guys were not put away or found or anything, but there was a clear belief that methodology and the nature of these crimes indicated that there was individuals perpetrating several of these crimes. And for one reason or another, they were never tracked down. Mm. So it's not a big leap to say, you know, you have people who are ready, you have predators, and it's quite clear that there are more vulnerable people out there for them. Mm. So the logical conclusion is... Yeah, no, it's a sobering thought. And on austerity, we might as well get into, you know, the library closures, which yeah. is a touchstone of this podcast, sadly. In Scotland, 69 libraries closed between 2011 and 2018, but there were 30 in 2017. Don't know what the numbers will be for this year. And five got hit especially hard, didn't it? I know that you were campaigning and out mm-hmm. doing your bit to try and stop that scourge. but It's low-hanging fruit, isn't it, the library? It's hard to prevent happening. Even though we have a First Minister who champions reading and who reads herself. She's incredible, actually, though. Yes. She's a voracious reader. Yes, she is. In fact, the year I was a Booker Prize judge, she used to take the mickey out of me. She reads on Saturday nights and she quite often tweets about what she's reading. And when you're a Booker judge, you're not even allowed to say what you're reading because that would indicate what had been submitted. And she would tease me on Saturday nights saying, I'm just reading such and such a book. What do you think of it, Val McDermott? <laughs> uh, but even with that, it wasn't enough to prevent library closures. I think it's incredibly short-sighted. It's not just writers who are made by libraries. It's doctors, it's nurses, it's architects, it's builders. It's anyone who wants to open their eyes and have a wider horizon. And... I think closing libraries is burning your seed corn. I think part of the difficulty is that politicians never go into libraries. They are the middle classes. They can buy a book if they want a book. They don't see what happens in libraries now. Libraries are not just a hushed place where people sit quietly looking at reference books now. Libraries are a hub for the community in all sorts of ways. All sorts of clubs and societies meet there, all sorts of groups. For a lot of people, it's their only access to the internet because not everybody has Wi-Fi, not everybody has a computer. So the library becomes a resource for the community. It's not just a place to borrow a book. And the failure to understand that seems to me to be symptomatic of the line, the sort of wall between political classes and the people that they're supposed to be looking after. Yeah, and it's awful, obviously, in a personal sense, to think of young Val, you know, your second home. Mm. The Kikoldi Library, which we went past on the train earlier, I looked out the window and it was right there. It was right by it's the very station. good. It's still it's actually a very good library. They beautiful did a, building. They did a beautiful refurb of it as well a few years ago. Oh, good. So they it's still a very, sort of £2 million pound refurb and they put a new cafe in. And so it's, oh, it's, it's nice to hear really some, nice. yeah, yeah, some so, good stories. Yeah. And there are new libraries being built and there are some quite interesting partnerships being made between supermarkets and local authorities, the, the, sort of the deal of you can put your supermarket in this, this new shopping mall in the centre of the city, but you've got to put a library above it. So things like that well, are yeah, happening, as needs, positive as needs are must happening. But, but I think that, you know, the overall picture is still pretty grim. It is. You know, they talk about, oh, well, but you can have volunteer-run libraries. But that's... that's no, no, no. Just, the volunteers, of course, do a great job. But they're limited. They're not librarians. They're not trained librarians. And there are no funds for restocking these libraries. It's gloom and doom. I'm sorry, yes. it, it just makes me very cross. Well, no, this is and this is the raison d'etre of the podcast, so please mm. be cross. Particularly in a time of austerity when people are again in a position where they can't afford books. 
And what about independent bookshops then? This one seems to be flourishing, but then it's a beautiful, beautiful place, as we said. But how would you paint the landscape there? What's very different sort of, you know, apples and oranges, but what's your take on why these shops have worked and, and the landscape generally? I think the question of independent bookshops is quite largely a question of where you are. Edinburgh, particularly, I think at the moment, is spoiled for lovely independent bookshops in a way that places like Glasgow and Fife outside of St Andrews often isn't. And as Val was sort of intimating, I think it is a class thing. I think it's often to do mm -hmm. with, with income and availability of books as a thing to be owned rather than as a thing to be borrowed. Well, this is the tragic thing about library closures as well, is that the communities that need them most are usually the communities where the libraries are closing down as well, which yeah. is the really, really awful oh, yeah. part. It's not the libraries in the middle class areas no. that close down because no, the middle classes are articulate and they know how to complain. It's the libraries on a council estate where the local people don't have at their disposal the easy mechanism for complaining, for protesting, for making it stop because it's not part of the culture that they have grown up with. Mm. I remember back in Newcastle working with Anne Cleves who we were campaigning to save a library in, in a pretty run-down council estate and this library had been built in a sort of little shopping mall in the 1980s and the only other things that were open in the shopping mall was the betting shop and the payday loan place. I mean, it was quite clear that the library was the hub here. Where are you going to go to find out about your benefits? You can't go into you know the betting shop and say, excuse me, can I borrow your computer for a minute? It's devastating to them. But independent bookshops are surviving because... But they become the community hub often as well. And mm. So here there's always a tea and coffee on the go and many of the good independent bookshops in Scotland are places where I know Lighthouse Books in Edinburgh were helping people who were homeless register to vote in the upcoming general election and they were offering that as a service and in the absence of those services being provided by libraries often independent bookshops mm. can become the place where people can come and ask for advice on how to find information, come for a place to relax and have a coffee and read a book. And it's not necessarily as driven on sales. Yes. But obviously, fundamentally, it is. But the atmosphere of being open and an open warm book. space. Yeah. yeah. But you also have, in indie bookshops, the, it's incumbent upon you, in a, in a way, to cultivate your readers. Yes. You have to remember what people like. You have to remember their taste. You have to figure out what the next thing is that they might be interested in. That's a way of helping people to explore and to make new discoveries. Into when you have people who come in and they read, you see them buy something and you ask them about it next time, you go, oh, well, have you tried this? Or then you end up, they recommend a book to you yeah. and you read it and it be... Mm. The community of readership, I suppose, is yeah. the the yeah. shared thing between the ongoing conversation mm -hmm. down the ages as well that these sorts of institutions allow us to have. And this is a podcast, as we know, is about libraries and bookshops. So I always like to ask Val, you've already touched on your library at home. Well, it's... how how without being too uh, nosy, how fastidious are you with your books? Are you, are you a alphabetical sort of person? Are you a regimented kind of reader or? The fiction is arranged alphabetically because otherwise how do you find what you you need to go back and look at again, whether it's to reread it or to refer to it? You're preaching to the choir, but I know yeah. people who don't always abide by that. Yeah, well, you know, like, I often go back for a very specific reason to a book, you know, because I'm thinking about, I might be writing an article or something and I want to think about that particular book. Or I'm just, I just get sort of, oh, I need to reread so-and-so. So, -and -so. so mm. I need to know where they are. But I'm slightly less organised in other areas of my reading life. I mean, in my office.
office was a big sort of chunk of non-fiction and it's not arranged according to anything other than that book looks like it should sit next to that book. It's not Dewey Decimal yeah, system yeah. In, the, in the non-fiction, I'm afraid. And Michael? Oh, I mean, the, you're here all the time, you're immersed in it, but well, at home, does it sort of come with you in terms of how you organise yourself? At home, the shelves? all the books that fit on a shelf are alphabetised. All the books that do not fit on a shelf <laughs> are, are stacked in... Yeah. rough tonal yeah. collocations with one another um, yeah, yeah, yeah. which yeah, often you... relies in hauling books out if you're looking for something in particular yeah. Yeah. What, do you, what do you do with your unread books how do you organise them do you organise them they tend to be sat next to my armchair and they do... table or armchair yeah, yeah. They, until I get down to them yeah. it's like I've got a random wall of unread books it's just like you know there's a sort of stratigraphic thing. You have to yeah. sort of work down to them, and it's if they end up right at the bottom, you know you probably should yeah. pull them back no, up no. again. Yeah. The time will come. They each have their moment, don't they? The moment in the sun. Yeah. They're biding their time, waiting for you. And I think even with the number of shelves that I've got, I mean, there's a shortage of space. And every now and again, you know, you think, I have moved this particular book through three houses. I'm really not going to read it. <laughs> I should really give it to the charity shop so that it may find the person who will read it and love it because it's sat there unloved on my shelves for 15 years and I'm not going to read it now. But isn't that the beauty of having a book is that anything else you buy runs out or you grow out of it or it goes off? A book is very patient. It will sit and wait until you are ready for it. Yeah, it's true actually. And then there are the books that you've picked up five times over the years and given up on and finally you pick it up for that last time and it speaks to you. Speaking of which... It would be lovely if, Val, you wouldn't mind browsing these gorgeous shelves and choosing a new book with Michael. Yes. You've spoken in the past about the power of browsing and this last sort of button on the podcast is designed to celebrate the serendipity of these places. And I know that you've spoken about the algorithms of buying online where you don't get challenged. You don't go thinking out of your reading box, as it were. Yeah. So it'd be great if you would. I don't know where you, this place is like an embarrassment of riches. Stuff yes. not to walk away with loads of books, but I'll please do. Something. I'm sure you will. Oh yes. Thank mm. you very very much, though. Both Thank of you. you. Thank you. Thank you. I know exactly where it is because it leapt out at me. There you go, yeah. Sensible footwear, a girl's guide. You should have loads of those in, they're really good. Yes. It's a memoir come history of LGBT activism over the last 50 years. Where does the title come from? Well, it's that thing that lesbians have sensible <laughs> shoes. <laughs> I mean, look at us, look at us. They're sensible shoes. So we'll take that one. Thank you so much for listening to Ex Libris. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Val and Michael as much as I did. If so, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast, wherever it is that you get your brain food. That way, you'll help us champion Labradors, uh, I mean libraries, and independent bookshops. To see inside glorious toppings in St Andrews and explore the podcast's other venues, as well as discover loads more on libraries and independent bookshops, please visit our website, exlibrispodcast.com. You can also get updates on Twitter and Instagram. Find me at thatbenholden. Follow those accounts also to have a chance of winning signed copies of Val's gripping new novel, How the Dead Speak, in hardback, as well as her fascinating work of non-fiction, Forensics, The Anatomy of Crime. Ex Libris is produced by Chris Sharp and myself. Its music is composed by Adam Pleath. 
Ex Libris is brought to you in association with the Light Bulb Trust, which illuminates lives via literacy and learning, providing opportunities to shine.